Welcome to series four of the Inspire podcast. In this episode, I speak with an inspirational woman called Marina Bazaar. Marina is the UK director of Talent Beyond Boundaries, an organization working with displaced talent. Marina talks about her experience as a refugee, immigration lawyer, and human rights advocate. I really enjoyed the conversation and have absolute belief the TBB program will make a huge difference to so many people throughout the world. Marina is an example to all. It's not where you start in life, it's where you finish. Okay, welcome Marina. Uh, Thank you for coming on to the Inspire podcast. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. Great to be here. Really excited to to have this conversation and to, to share a little bit more about, about life and, and all things displaced talent. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, to hearing about your journey. Uh, and on that, could you just, uh, I guess, give a, an introduction to, to yourself? Uh, would be helpful. Yeah. So my name is Marina Brazar. I am the TBB Talent Beyond Boundaries UK Director based in London and have a background as a refugee, an immigration lawyer, and an advocate for for human rights and and refugee rights. Okay, and I'm just going to take you right back to the start uh, of your journey. Just give us an indication of what it was like growing up for you and uh, where you've come from. Yeah, so um, I was born in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mum and dad, super successful professionals, two brothers, one's seven years older, one's one year younger. Was born into a really tight-knit family, an extended family where every Sunday, you know, we would have lunch at the grandparents and have aunties and uncles and cousins there. So um, a really wholesome sort of childhood. But then when I was about two years old, war broke out in Bosnia and, and we sort of got news from it from an uncle who was in the army. And a decision had to be made to to either leave immediately or, or risk whatever will happen. So my parents made the decision that my mum, my auntie, myself and my brothers would would leave Sarajevo. We ended up going to uh, stay with some family in, in Montenegro. Meanwhile, my dad would stay behind and wrap up affairs. I mean, they had a business and, and you know, homes and properties and things. But unfortunately, a few days after we left, the siege of Sarajevo happened and there was no one in, no one out. Yes, as I said, in Montenegro, but it became quite dangerous for us to be there and for our family to, to harbour us on, on a very sort of lower level. It was sort of an Anne Frank situation where we were literally being hidden away, not being, my brother wasn't able to go to school. And so my mum made the decision to get in touch with um, some humanitarian organisations Organizations, and we ended up moving to Croatia to a place called Drasnice to basically live in a little studio apartment, which was right on the beach. So I know that now we all seek out a, a Croatian beach holiday, but that's where our refugee camp was. We were supported by organizations like Caritas and, and UNHCR and so on. So my mum is an incredible woman who, who tried to make our childhood as normal as possible in the circumstances, while not knowing whether her husband or family were, were alive back back in the war. So the war finished. My dad made his way through through aid organisations to where we were. He survived. We were reunited. We went through UNHCR's um, resettlement interviews and were given the option of resettlement in a number of countries. My dad decided that he wanted to go somewhere where he could go to the beach with his kids, which is what he dreamed about, and wanted to get as far away as possible from, from what we'd endured. So we ended up in a 
Australia. So that is the journey from, yeah, from from sort of, you know, in, in six years of my life, going from one place to another in quite traumatic circumstances. Okay, so you were you were two when where the, when the war broke out. What, what age were you when you arrived in Australia? Were you six or? Six. Six, yeah. Yeah. All right, okay. You know, interested just to pick up that thread on your, on your father as well in terms of making his way. Was there, was there any communication during that time with him or did he was it all through the organization it was very very infrequent conversations obviously it was you know it would have been like once a month or once every two months on a very sketchy line he effectively had to be smuggled on the goodwill of his friends on family so the war in bosnia was it was an ethnic and a, and a religious war and so you know your name indicated what religion or what ethnicity you were from and so the challenge for my family was was that we were all mixed religion, mixed race. So we were a combination of Bosnians and Croatians and Serbians. And so while that put us in, in tremendous danger and, and made us really susceptible to persecution, it also allowed my dad to sort of leverage that as he made his way from, from Sarajevo to said to be able to be reunited with us. He found out where we were because of, you know, communications with um, humanitarian organisations that after the war started matching people with with family that had been dispersed. Okay. And um, you, you mentioned that you're a real tight-knit family. Do you think that strength you had within the family really helped during that time that you were able to, to lean in? And obviously a long time ago, have you actually got any sort of vivid memories of that time or is it just what you've been told through parents and stuff? Yeah. So it's hard to say, right, because sometimes your memory is what you make it. So mm. some of our family videos and home videos were preserved. And so I will say that I have a memory of that. In terms of the childhood, I remember a nice childhood. I remember, you know, being homeschooled by mum. I remember, you know, playing and, and um, being at the beach with my, with my brothers. I remember when my dad came, my younger brother, as my dad approached, sort of said, who is that man? Because he had not had the benefit of knowing his dad before we had to leave you know I remember our dad teaching us how to how to swim I remember the the excitement and the joy of aid organizations coming in and giving food and clothing and things like that and and the sort of joy that came with with getting what what is a basic fundamental need but because it's not as accessible as as heading down to the local Tesco it was it was really an event but I I also remember some some tough times of you know like my mum and my older brother crying because they understood stood and there were days that were much harder than others. My older brother also ended up getting diabetes as a child so he was about 11 at the time and they couldn't diagnose it because the, the medical systems weren't strong enough but once it was diagnosed there was a huge wraparound by some German aid organisations who, who helped supply him with insulin and things but also sugar free chocolate so he was the envy of all the kids mm -hmm. um, because he had his own secret stash so yeah I, I think that there was always a will to keep going because we were doing it for each other and there was always a hope that we would be reunited and you know we were reunited with my father and and as a family unit we moved to Australia my dad sort of learned English basically at university my mum did not speak a word and neither did we as children but within a year of being in Australia we were able to sponsor our extended family so both sets of grandparents aunties and uncles and and a little cousin so what we we basically 
basically picked up where we left off. And I think it was through that joy and that love and, and that family connection that we were able to, to overcome a lot of the, 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 tra- the trauma and, and the negative sort of aspects of, of the, the six years that preceded. So you've landed in Australia, six years of age, don't really speak the language. How did you get through that cultural change? It sounds like you sort of did within a year. Mm. Um, yeah, what, how did that happen? Were you welcomed into the community? Yeah, so Australia have one of the world's leading resettlement programs, and that is where Australia has a quota of the number of vulnerable people they'll bring into the community. And that that's a program where, you know, you're referred by UNHCR, that migration is done through IOM, the International Organization of Migration, and then there are resettlement organizations that sort of greet you on the ground. You know, we were provided with um, somewhere to live and a fridge full of food. We were provided with Medicare cards, which is the equivalent of the NHS. We were, mum and dad were given a bank card with money on it from, you know, public funds and and they were sort of blown away by that. So, you know, the the question was always like, what did we do to deserve this? We were helped to be enrolled in school and and things like that. But in terms of resettlement, there there were also some, some real flaws. So one of them being that we were resettled with people based on the language we speak, which in fact was a microorganism of what we just escaped. So, you know, what we spoke in Bosnia is Bosnian, but more technically Serbo-Croat. And so some of our neighbours in Bosnia would be our enemies. Not that we thought of it like that, but there were some people who still carried those burdens, those tensions and and that sort of resentment. So it wasn't, you know, a beautiful landing. But within six months, my mum and dad had a conviction to say, we will stand on our own two feet. And my dad was a telecommunications engineer. Within six months of arriving, in Australia, got a job at Vodafone and got, you know, a great paycheck. And as soon as his first paycheck hit, you know, we no longer needed social security. We no longer needed to be in that sort of estate housing. We could go and find somewhere to live and, and start building our own community. Meanwhile, meanwhile, my mum was an economist. Obviously, she studied economy in a communist country, so <laughs> had to cross-qualify. So she cross-qualified while we were at school and, and pretty much, within a year, wheels were turning to start living a really independent life. And I will always remember my parents saying, your, your heart and your soul are Bosnian, but you are Australian. And so that's the mentality that we had and, and a gratefulness and a deep gratitude to, to Australia and, and the community for, for allowing us to, to be part of that community. That's really interesting that I guess reading between the lines here that you, you, you landed and you, you got the food, the bank card, the, the 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 schooling, everything, but you still had the community you were put in based on the language was what you'd come from and you wanted to be accepted into a new community, a new way of life. And it's, it's great that both your parents just went, you know what, we're getting out of this and we're going to, to, to start a new life in Australia. And with that comment of you are Australian, you know, yeah. it's total acceptance of the new beginning in effect, which is, which is incredible. So, so that, that, that's really interesting. So you, 
you obviously went through the school system within uh, within Australia. Obviously, on, on got your parents now both uh, in employment and started a new life. Just sort of fast forward through to mm-hmm. to, to your sort of new new career, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you obviously have gone into the the law sector. What was the reason for that, and was it based on what you'd come from? Absolutely. So I was always fascinated by the push and pull of migration. You know, my dad said that if we couldn't have moved through such a secure route, we would have stayed where we were. And it's really interesting. Like I was really, the more I started thinking about that as as I was growing up, the more I, I resonated with it. I also think that I have some, you know, as a child, I was told that I have a fight. Like it was almost a punishment to be like I was a brat that always argued. But there was always this, this sort of sense of challenging and debating and things like that. So I think I had a, a, a personal characteristic that that really drew me to the law. It was something that was quite controversial in my family, if you will. You know, typically you think that if your child wants to be a lawyer, it's something that's um, to be celebrated. But law in in Bosnia was quite an administrative sort of thing. It it was an inquisitorial system where a lawyer would put together mandated templated pieces of paper and and put them into a courthouse. You know, it it was not as analytical and as sort of robust as, as a common law system system is that it is in Australia or in the UK. Um, and when I said that, my mum and dad were first taken aback. Second thing that I did was in high school, I, I was very good at maths, but I didn't enjoy it. So I dropped maths and my parents were mortified by that. They said without maths, there is no logic. Again, <laughs> a very sort of like Balkan mindset, if you will. And the third is I was basically a, the black sheep in my family because everyone in my family is so technical. So dad, engineer, mum, economist, um, my brother's an electric, like an electrical engineer and, and my younger brother is a, in banking. Um, and so for me to come out into the humanities was quite controversial, but I will always refer to my personal experience and, and this want to understand more and and to see the structures that govern things that led me into the law. And then specifically, my entire career has been based around immigration. And I think that's, um, that goes without saying that connection there. Yeah. So you were argumentative. Uh, <laughs> which is uh, so when you dropped out of maths I'm sure you all argued and debated that anyway and won clearly absolutely <laughs> no, there's some, I, I'm not sure if you've uh, listened to Matthew McConaughey in terms of uh, his upbringing and, and he was what we're going into into law and it was all around debating at the dinner table and always winning so it sounds like you've got something in common there Absolutely. I actually did listen to that, um, the podcast, The Stuff of the Legends, where it was very, very much talked about that. And I would debate things that I didn't need to just just to do it. So I, I definitely am fit for purpose and I definitely did find my calling. Yeah, good. Okay, so you won an award. I mean, you, first of all, in terms of employment, EY, Playfair, and you won the Young Player of the Year Award, which is unbelievable. Can you just give us um, an overview of that and how that came about and what that award meant to you? So I went through university. I did in-country study. I lived in Spain for a year. And in my last year of law school, I was like, I need to do something that 
is going to help in in building a career. So I started paralegaling at a firm called Katie Mallion and Associates. There, Katie Mallion became an, a tremendous mentor, a guide, and and you know a real beacon for for me in 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 the world of law. Um, so it was an immigration law firm that did both corporate and humanitarian immigration, and so that's where I started seeing the cross between what managed migration programs are based on skill and what humanitarian programs are based on only vulnerability. Following that, I moved moved to Ernst & Young, as it was then, so EY, and I worked at EY for a number of years. I can't say that I had tremendous passion for the content of the work, but in terms of the skills and being a professional, I learned so much about business acumen, about the value of my time, about templates and procedures and structures and things. I think that that has brought a real enrichment to, to sort of every role that I've been with. And then Playfair was just like a meeting of the two worlds. It was, it was a fantastic sort of six years of my life where I led a team of lawyers. So I was the head of corporate and private clients, but it meant that we could sort of push the boundaries on on running test cases, on doing advocacy, but then also engaging with really incredible corporate employers who were, who were um, achieving great things in business because they had international recruits and talents and, and different ideas and diversity of workforce in, the, in their ranks. So it was fantastic to be a part of that. So I, I won a number of awards. So Young Migration Lawyer of the Year, Woman Lawyer of the Year up and coming, and I was named one of the 100 Women of Influence in Australia. And all that came from mentors and, and from colleagues who sort of saw, I don't know, maybe the passion, the, the, the outcomes that we were achieving. But also I think it was this idea of not taking no for an answer. So just because it wasn't written in a policy or in the law doesn't mean that it shouldn't be just because something is the way that it is doesn't mean that that's not an intended consequence and we constantly push the barriers and I always made sure that even in in my practice there was a humanitarian and and a compassion element to my work so um, whether that be through volunteering or whatever it, I always had to sort of ground myself to to the reason why I got into to immigration law in the first place obviously ed- education academia hugely important to you however we sort of skipped over the, the bit about Spain, but you've got an incredible amount of uh, life skills. Do you believe it's the combination of the two that have given you this resilience and ability to, to win these awards? And and if so, what weighting do you put on, on both? What, what do you mm. think is the most important, given that you've tra- travelled an awful lot? It's a really interesting question. I think that, you know, one is theory, one is practice. So obviously you've got the academia and, you know, you learn things in law school which are so um, adaptable to so many different fields and areas. You train your mind to think in a, in a certain way. You also train yourself to appreciate things like reading, to appreciate different opinions and so on. The life experiences are then obviously putting that into practice. And I think that, you know, as you're, as you're sort of going through school, high school, you're going into university, academia is is really important because that then starts pushing you in the direction of where your life is going to take you and where your life skills are going to take over. I think that, you know, now being in my early 30s, the the fact that I'm doing the work that I'm doing, I obviously rely on my um, the things that I learned through my academic studies, but that's instinctive. It's more about being pushed to rely on, on things like resilience, my life skills, my 
my my memories, the anecdotes, the passion and things, they're the things that, that really resonate with people. Very rarely do you come out of an interview when you're or, 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 a, or a meeting where someone's like, oh, that person's really smart, of course. But what people tend to walk away with is like, oh, that person was really passionate or that person really believed in what they were doing or that person is well-traveled or has experienced this and that. And, and, and so I think they really complement each other. And, and for me, academia, I couldn't have, I wouldn't have achieved my life skills if it wasn't for academia. So it is the chicken or the egg. But now I rely much more on, on my life experiences and my academia is a subliminal instinctive thing that, that comes up when it needs to. Good answer. Well articulated. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, when I was asking the question, I was thinking I wouldn't want to be answering that. Uh, <laughs> so um, just uh, the next phase of your life was um, AMB Foundation, mm-hmm. which is it five, five six years? Something yeah. Like that. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, um, I was always really passionate about staying connected to the real issues and not, you know, sitting in a in a legal office with my colleagues solving legal dilemmas. It was really about providing solutions more broadly. So AMB Foundation um, stands for uh, the Aspire Motivate Believe Foundation, and it was co-founded with a good friend of mine, Adriana Mercado. It was because through the work, excuse me, that we were doing with people seeking asylum. So though they are people who didn't come through the resettlement program, as I alluded to, in terms of my family, which is capped and very limited, they arrived typically to Australia by boat and they did not arrive with a legal status. They claimed asylum to assert their right for international protection. It's a sad reality that Australia, like many other countries, have very punitive asylum policies and they are based on deterrence. But deterrence of people seeking asylum rather than potentially what I think might be more effective in deterrence of people that facilitate it and stopping it at the source whole other topic but basically people who seek asylum get very little in terms of support in terms of opportunity in terms of access and through my work I saw that there were a lot of particularly young students who were doing incredibly well at school there was one story of of a boy who who arrived to Australia from Lebanon he was he was persecuted there he arrived to Australia three years prior but in that three years became the school captain and the ducks of his school and really Really wanted to study construction project management but could not afford international student fees because that was his immigration status. And so um, we worked to get a scholarship and the universities were very gracious in building scholarships. But then there's a realisation that you have to pay for internet, you have to buy textbooks, you have to get to uni, you have to sign up for associations and the practical costs, despite scholarships being provided, the practical costs were then the obstacle. And so AMB foundation was founded to to help with those practical costs so sim cards you know internet fees textbooks etc etc it then led to a partnership with university of technology sydney where i studied my law and international studies degree and with amb's advocacy we created the humanitarian scholarship which was adapted by all faculties and 16 scholarships for people seeking asylum were offered each year together with funds for practical living costs, which for, you know, the period of our partnership were provided by the AMB Foundation. 
it's something that sort of I've translated as I continue to sit on the board of the Asylum Seeker Centre in Sydney, just just staying really like keeping my finger on the pulse in, in terms of these issues as they as they are rolling out in Australia and, and how different countries influence other countries' policies and so on. So even though I'm sat in London, being part of the, you know, being on the board of the Asylum Seeker Centre is just so fulfilling, but also important. But it is, it, it, it maintains the bridge of AMB Foundation, although we we have wound up. That connection and the legacy of the humanitarian scholarship and the fact that people from the Asylum Seeker Centre can access it is just, yeah, it's it's tremendously important and humbling as, as an achievement um, in my life overall. Yeah, I can imagine the impact on many individuals' lives is, uh, is is going to be there to see and I'm sure must give you huge satisfaction and you use the word fulfilment you know it must be so good to, to see and I'm sure you, you probably keep in touch with a, with a number of those people's lives yeah, change yeah. so yeah fair, fair play for, for that I'm going to bring us right up to date here mm-hmm. um, and, and talk about Talent Beyond Boundaries which is something that we started chatting about about a few weeks ago in terms of the, the business and the programme something that I think when I first started speaking to you, I said it, it felt right and, and, it, and it, it really did. Uh, obviously, we've taken that on now. We're moving forward with a formal partnership. Could you just sort of speak a little bit about the, the overview of Talent Beyond Boundaries and what that is and what the offering is? Absolutely. So Talent Beyond Boundaries is the first organisation in the world dedicated to displaced talent mobility. So that is the process whereby people who are living in displaced people who are living in displacement, assessed on both their vocation, their skills, their experience, as well as their vulnerability. At the moment, the way that the humanitarian world works is that if you're looking to get out of displacement, the most traditional route is through resettlement. It's to integrate into the community that is your country of first first asylum or to to repatriate. There is now a huge movement for these complementary pathways and labour mobility or displaced talent mobility is one. So Talent Beyond Boundaries is a global organisation. We have a presence in source teams being in Lebanon and Jordan and in destination teams of Australia, Canada, and most recently, the UK. Our work is centred around what's called the Talent Catalogue. And it is a first of its kind bespoke software and database for displaced talent mobility. So what it is, it it is basically like LinkedIn, where candidates are asked, uh, register and are asked a series of questions, like if they have qualifications, uh, job experience, certification, language, etc. And that ultimately creates a profile, but also a CV for them. We then use that to dispel the myth about people in displacement being purely vulnerable and, and needing protection. It is about, you know, sharing the stories of agency, empowerment, skill, talent, and, and resilience of, of people. But it also is a way that we can start connecting those people with international employment and visa opportunities. So the real core of TBB's work is opening those pathways, making people on the talent catalogue visible, accessible, and the pathways for them to get to Australia, Canada, the UK, and many other countries on our sort of to-do list available to them. And so it's with great partnerships, like with um, PSR Solutions, that we see the tremendous potential for scale and growth. But more importantly, it's about levelling the playing field and just giving equity to someone who is displaced for those situations to be recognised 
and for accessibility not to be compromised. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's, that, that stood out in the conversation with, uh, with John was when he talked about we want to give people the opportunity, but we want them to have the right skills for the job, not to be mm. taken on because they're displaced. And that was really powerful because he's absolutely right. What we're, we're, we're talking about here is skilled individuals have got the skills to to be placed within the UK market in this uh, in this presence construction where there's a huge skills gap and we can present a displaced individual an opportunity to come and work in the UK with that skill set and that, that that's the pathway that we're, we're looking to uh, fulfill the, the the talent catalog that, that you mentioned obviously I've had a look at it is mm-hmm. is fantastic uh, in terms of the amount of skilled individuals that are on there could you just speak to the the, the visa process I think this is mm-hmm. really important and probably when anyone that's looking at this will straight away be thinking okay well how, how are they going to get into the country from a visa aspect just talk about the the, the funding in terms of the US funding some of the individuals mm-hmm. involved in this I think that'd be great to give a, a, a rounded overview of that as well absolutely so again the premise and the fundamental thing is that these are skilled and talented individuals that is the driving force behind displaced talent mobility the fact that there is vulnerability and displacement is important and that is that is the ultimate outcome to lift people out of displacement but it's why we say this is not charity this is not sponsoring a refugee this is and should be a competitive recruitment process to attract the best talent to your organization to the broader community etc so thank you for making that point and and for bringing that up because it is it is really our mantra this is an employer-led model for attracting the best talent but in doing so lifting people out of displacement so the talent cap Catalog um, now has over 25,000 people registered, representing 151 occupations. And the initial funding for it came from the Obama administration State Department. And it was to ask and answer the question of, are there skilled people in displacement? And obviously the answer is yes. So since then, we've had funding from, you know, global organizations, Rockefeller Foundation um, in the UK, uh, we're working with Unbound and an AB Charitable Trust. Every country sort of has different levels of, of engagement and interaction um, to make this a movement, a philanthropic movement to catalyze the environment as it is, to allow us to graft the solution onto partners and then for TBB to disappear. So our role here is to make this normal and for TBB to no longer be required. We're not seeking to become a, a new global NGO. We are sort of disruptors, if you will. We catalyze and then we graft and disappear. And that's where partnerships are, are, are so fundamental and part of the, the, the solution and the change. In terms of the visa, the UK earlier this year had a complete visa reform. And what we have determined is that the guild worker route is in many ways the right fit for these candidates coming into the UK because it tests skills, language ability, etc., which all our candidates can prove. It involves employers who have sponsorship undertakings and, you know, a commitment to employment and, and responsibilities and obligations in order to provide, you know, safe and, and legal and, and meaningful work. And it is also just a normal process. So when we speak to employers, we're not asking them to adapt their policies to change their processes. It is literally about how do we 
tweak what already exists to make it more purpose-built for displaced talent mobility. So in terms of TBB's advocacy, we are advocating for a displaced talent mobility visa or a stream or a solution. That advocacy resulted in October last year in a government commitment made in the House of Lords for the UK government to start looking at displaced talent mobility solutions. That's all in the works. We are working with you know government partners and advisors in, in terms of building what that will look like. And the idea is that it would be a stream of the, of the skilled worker visa with the relevant flexibility, adaptations, but also integration measures to yield the best outcomes and prospects of success for candidates and employers as probably the most important stakeholders in this process. So that's in the works. But for now, we are relying on what already exists, and that is the skilled uh, worker visa. Okay. Obviously, we're going through the process at the, at the minute. So we have decided to go through the process, prove the concept ourselves and hire an individual that will then lead our program in the UK. So just to give, I guess, listeners just an overview of what, what we, we've done with, with yourself, we presented sort of five, five questions, obviously giving you a job description and through the talent catalogue, the individual's that shortlisted have the ability to upload a video on preset questions and then send it over to us for a shortlisting process, which is incredibly powerful for us to be able to, to get a feel based on those questions that are important in the role and the cultural fit. One aspect of this, when this displaced individual lands with, with us in our business that we see is the cultural handholding, if you like, that's going to be required. And I think John spoke about, about this, didn't he, passionately in terms of this isn't you know this isn't going to be land instantly into work off you go and do your job there's about bringing them into the community mm-hmm. and that's the bit that feels right for me that we're having an impact on somebody's life we're giving them an opportunity and also they're adding our value to our business so really looking forward to, to to that and just to take that on one step further a displaced individual with the skill set is one thing what do you think they bring in terms of the character traits everyone's different of course mm-hmm. but just in terms of sweeping statement in terms of the success you've had mm-hmm. where do you think I think the traits and resilience clearly would be one that comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. What what are those sort of top three traits that you would see? Yeah. I will just um, allude to what you were talking about in our partnership. I will say that it is sort of the first of its kind where TVB is engaged with a recruitment organisation. And and the reason for that is we saw your your passion, your principles being very closely aligned to ours. And the fact that from the outset, you were willing to to not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And and through hiring this individual and using them as an ambassador for, for the program more broadly was a really powerful thing. So in terms of the potential of a partnership, it's really exciting and, and we are very thankful and grateful to, to have been given the opportunity to partner with you. On what candidates can bring, I think resilience is one and I think that that's sort of an assumed trait. I think ambition is a huge one. So being given an opportunity to to grow from somewhere where you were kept quite trapped really releases a sense of ambition and, and wanting to achieve so much um, in a lot of our candidates. So we see that. The second thing is just a sense of loyalty. And that's that, that comes from being grateful, understanding that, you know, they are loyal to their employers, to their colleagues, to the mission of the organisation, because firstly, it's their 
their first introduction to a new country. And through the process, you sort of get to know each other quite intimately and on a level that you might not get to know other employees as you go through a recruitment process. And I think that that builds a lot of loyalty. And what we've seen in Australia and Canada um, through our programs is that loyalty corresponds to retention and responds to, to an openness to be really an inclusive part of the organization. And then I would say that the third one is diversity. So not only diversity in terms of tick the box in sort of DNI sort of context, but diversity in thought, in opinion, in experience, in approach, in language. So I think that those three things together are add to the win of getting a, of, of both getting a skilled employee and lifting someone out of displacement, the benefits of that flow onto a team and a community more broadly. I think the the, the last point you make in terms of diversity is, is, is key for me. And I think one phrase that I hate is, oh, we've always done it this way. So it must be right. And this individual will challenge that <laughs> straight away with different opinions, different thoughts, because clearly they come from a totally different background. And I think when we first spoke, I was talking about construction and that it's, you know, typically got the, you know, a demographic that... Mm-hmm over a long period of time is ultimately the same females coming into construction is great if we the more i guess different demographics and backgrounds is going to challenge and disrupt to move it forward and i think this is what this individual will do for us as well to challenge our processes and thoughts because let's be honest we're talking about skilled individuals here the cvs i've already seen Mm. you know we're, we're talking high caliber individuals master's degree high quality talent and really looking forward to 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 getting them in so ambition loyalty diversity three you know Mm. huge huge points for any employer looking for for displaced talent so thank you for that i'm going to finish off by asking this podcast is all about inspiring ordinary people to achieve extraordinary things i was i'm thinking who your mentor and inspiration may be However, I'm going to ask the question, who who inspired you through your life? Who is your mentor and, and has that individual changed over time or is it still mm. very much that like one person? So I have like, I'll compartmentalize my life. So in terms of my life and being a human and a, and a global citizen, it would equally be my parents as, as mentors, what they did for us and the doors they opened, the community they developed around us and the resilience, the values and everything is a complete testament to them. So when I think of my success, it is a success that I completely share with them. In terms of professionally, my mentor absolutely was Katie Mellian. She continues to be a sort of a voice of reason. And when there are big things to to note and to celebrate, to consider, she's definitely there. And then this is a bit of a curveball, but I'm really sort of inspired by um, the artist Frida Kahlo. So first of all, I'm not, I'm quite an analytical person. So creative expression is not, not my forte, but she overcomes such adversity. She was such a powerful woman in in a time where women were often overlooked. She, you know, had to go through some horrendous hurt physically, emotionally, etc. But she's left such a tremendous legacy, such an impressive legacy and did so with brilliant self-awareness. And I think that self-awareness is something that I'm continuing to develop. So it's one thing to be aware of yourself and what you're feeling, what you're going through, you know, what you're grateful for. It's another thing to, to practice it or have mechanisms to cope and deal and everything else. So yeah, I, I think that's sort of my, that's my sort of ecosystem system of, of support and mentorship. 
okay. Um, and something I've spoken about on here before is sort of having a, a board of directors in your life, people that you go to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like you've pretty much got that on lock there with your, yeah, uh, yeah. with your network of people and these individuals. You don't even have to know them, but you can look to them for, for inspiration. I, I guess moving on to the last question and I think you, you touched on it with the uh, A&B Foundation and you used the word legacy earlier on. How important is legacy to you and how you, <laughs> is it important to you or, or not? Frankly, it's not important to me. Like I don't do the things that I do because I want to build a legacy. Maybe not at this point in my life. At this point, I'm driven by purpose, by passion and by the mission. And that is to lift more people out of displacement. I think the legacy comes after that. But I can tell you that I remember when we were in refugee camp, when I was a six-year-old child, the person who sat in front of us in a blue UNHCR vest and being told that this person's going to change our life. And they did. And so if I can play a role in that, whether that be a conversation with someone on the tube or, you know, facilitating recruitment and welcoming someone at Heathrow Airport, that legacy is is what's really important. And I think legacy can be as simple as an impression or a way that you make someone feel that they walk away with. A broader legacy maybe could be a body of work or something as I move through my life. But at this stage, there's still so much to do. There there is. And I was just just thinking that as you were talking, it's, you know, early 30s, you know, asking about legacies probably a bit much but mm. I think you've already you've already created a legacy from what I can see in terms of the work you've already done with A&B Foundation you've impacted so many individuals and I think this podcast anyone listening to it will be inspired certainly I was inspired from the conversation with you to partner with Talent Beyond Boundaries and what we'll do in the show notes is we will put links to displacedtalent.co.uk Talent Beyond Boundaries and, and obviously uh, a link to probably your profile as well for anyone that wants to get in touch this has been for, for me just a, a pleasure to talk with you and, and go through your I guess your, your, your life story you've achieved a, an awful lot and thank you very much for, for sharing it with us and really look forward to working with you in the future as well thank you so much